This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we remember that you came in the flesh and as we await your second coming, we pray that you would come to us even now by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would, as we sit under your word, that you would point our eyes to you, that we would see, Lord Jesus, that you are true and that you are beautiful and that you would help us to become more like yourself. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is the second Sunday of Advent, and as Father Jonathan reminded us last week, Advent marks the start of a new liturgical or Christian year. And as I say these words, I'm very sensitive to the fact that for many of us, When we say things like Advent or church seasons or church calendars or liturgical calendars, sometimes it feels like a foreign language. We're not really sure what we're talking about. So if you feel confused, that's okay. If you're wondering what we're talking about, I want to encourage you to pick up a copy of one of our daily prayer guides. There are these booklets you can find uh, on your way out of either exit. They have this striking painting on the front of it. Inside the prayer guide, is a really helpful overview of the whole church calendar. It's a great resource, a good thing to read. But as with so many things, like learning a new language or learning how to love, learning the liturgical calendar is better caught than taught. It's always good to read about these kinds of things, but the best way to learn the Christian calendar is to live it. Just worship with us for a few years and eventually you'll pick it up, I promise. Now, despite the fact that I'm talking about it, one of the main things that I want to say about the liturgical calendar is that it's actually not meant to be our focus. The liturgical calendar is kind of like the setting of a diamond ring. The point of the setting is to focus our eyes on what matters most, on the diamond. And this is what the church calendar does. It focuses our eyes on Jesus and the life that Jesus calls us to. And every season does this a little bit differently, whether it's Advent or whether it's Lent or Easter. Each season has a slightly different emphasis. Each season has its own spirituality, if you want to think of it that way. And there are two big themes for what we might call Advent spirituality, and those are the themes of waiting and the themes of holiness. And we see each of these themes in the passage from 2 Peter chapter 3. And so as we turn our attention to this passage, I want this morning for us to think about what does it mean to wait? What is Advent waiting? And what does it mean to be holy? And why should we be holy? These are some of the questions that I hope to answer this morning. The assigned reading from 2 Peter was meant to begin with verse 8. But I actually wanted to pick things up a little bit earlier in the chapter. I included verses 1 through 4 so that we could have a sense of why Peter was talking about what he was talking about, gives us a little context for our passage. So in verses 1 through 4, Peter is responding to this group of people that he calls scoffers. A scoffer is a really good biblical word, be a great word to bring back into our own vernacular, be great to say sometimes. 
To scoff means to laugh at something or to mock something. Scoffers are people who roll their eyes at religion. Scoffers think religion is dumb at best and dangerous at worst. And scoffers say things to try to discredit the Bible and to disprove Christianity. And we get an example of the kinds of things they say in verse 4. The scoffers ask, where is this coming that God has promised? And this isn't the genuine question of a humble seeker really wanting the answer. This is more like a leading question from a prosecutor. Actually, it's a rhetorical question to make the point that God isn't coming again because God never came in the first place. That's what they mean when they say, ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning. What they're saying is nothing changes because God isn't real. Now, even though Peter tells us to be skeptical of these skeptics, and even though he dismantles the very premise of their argument, refuting their view of human history, even though he thinks they're wrong, Peter doesn't just sweep their question under the rug. And I think we should be grateful for that. Any religion that hides from hard questions simply is not a religion worth following. The truth is, the scoffers ask a legitimate question. This is a fair question. Jesus himself said he is coming soon. And it's been a while. Where is he? <clears throat> Why is he taking so long? And what's the point in all this waiting? Where is the promise of his coming? This is a good question. It's a question that needs to be answered. And Peter answers the question for us. He says the reason why Jesus has yet to return is pretty simple, but it's good. He's creating time for people to turn to him. He's making space for sinners to come home. We see that in verses 8 and 9. Do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. <clears throat> the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. You see, God might seem like he's being slow, but he's not. He's being patient. He's giving everyone space and time to change, as Eugene Peterson puts it. And this actually makes me think about my own life, my own story. I grew up in a family that was very nominally Christian. Church was the thing that we did sometimes, but it wasn't a thing that really mattered very much. And I can't remember exactly, because honestly, going to church was so forgettable for me as a kid, but my best guess is that I probably heard the gospel a hundred times before it really clicked. Before I began to follow Jesus, I could probably even tell you what the gospel was. It just didn't mean anything to me. I heard the gospel a hundred times, and I felt nothing. I felt nothing. And then when I was 16, to the surprise of everybody, especially myself, I heard the gospel for the 101st time. And the message of Christ's love the message that used to mean nothing suddenly meant everything to me. And it took a while. I was slow on the uptake, maybe. But God wasn't being slow. He wasn't absent. He was being patient with me. He was giving a sinner like me space and time to become a saint. This is why Christ has not yet come. That's why we're still waiting 
for him to come. He's giving us space and time to become saints. And in this next section in verses 11 through 15, Peter reminds us that even though his coming is delayed, even though it might seem slow, Christ really is coming again. And Peter tells us that this should shape how we actually live our lives. And this is where I think the themes that we are talking about, this Advent spirituality really shines through. We see this especially in verses 11 to 12. Now, this is a kind of a confusing uh, sentence. It's really sort of a long run-on question. And so I'm going to turn it into a statement so that it's a little bit clearer. This is what Peter is saying in verses 11 through 12. Because Christ really is coming again, you should devote yourselves to holy living and to waiting on the Lord. And so I want to spend some time talking about holiness and talking about waiting. What do these things mean? What does it look like? And I want to begin with talking about what it means to wait. So when we think about waiting, I think we usually associate it with being passive, with being inactive. We're just sitting around waiting for something to happen. But this isn't the kind of waiting that Peter has in mind. And I actually think pregnancy is a really helpful analogy to understand what waiting means. Advent waiting is passive like pregnancy is passive, which is to say it's not passive at all, right? Ask any woman who has grown a baby in her belly, and she will tell you she might be waiting nine months for that baby to come into the world, but she's not just sitting around doing nothing. The mom's body is doing a lot of work to nourish and grow that baby, and the baby's body is also doing a lot of work as well. And I'll just give you one example of this kind of active waiting. A human baby is born with 100 billion neurons, 100 billion brain cells, which is a staggering number to think about. According to some estimates, that's the same number of stars in our galaxy. Now, in order for a child to be born with 100 billion neurons, the baby needs to grow, on average, 250,000 brain cells every minute for the course of the pregnancy. I crunched some numbers, and I'm not a mathematician, so you can check my math later, but that adds up to an average of 4,200 brain cells a second over the course of nine months. It's pretty amazing. As we wait nine months for a baby to make her entrance, There's actually a lot going on. There's so much activity and growth and development, and so much of this activity we can't even see. I think this is the kind of waiting that Advent calls us to. It's not passive or static. It's a waiting that is somehow also a hastening. It's the kind of waiting that grows a baby. And as we actively wait for Christ to come again, Peter calls us, to a second thing. He calls us to devote ourselves to holiness. And we see this twice in our passage in verses 11 and 14. And like waiting, I think holiness is another thing that we don't really uh, think of rightly. Holiness is one of those things that we don't really talk about enough, and I think it's because we don't really care about it. And I think that's because we don't really understand what holiness is or why it matters. And so this morning, I want to correct a couple misunderstandings about holiness. And one misunderstanding, this is a fundamental one, is what holiness actually is. So when we think of God's holiness, I think we often imagine something that is theoretical, something that is remote and far off, something that's unrelatable, cold, too cold to touch. 
And when we think of so-called holy people, what often comes to mind are people who are judgy, people who are condescending, people who make you feel bad about yourself, make you feel small. And so holiness, holiness is this unattainable, maybe even this undesirable thing. It's judgmental, it's condescending, it's cold. And if that's what holiness is, I don't want to be holy. I think I'll pass. But I think this is a complete misunderstanding of what holiness actually is. Those things are cheap counterfeits of holiness. So what is holiness? Well, the answer to that question, I think, has everything to do with Jesus. To borrow a phrase from the theologian Herbert McCabe, the life of Jesus is what the holiness of God looks like when it's projected on the screen of human history. Jesus is what holiness looks like. And Jesus shows us that holiness looks like a human being fully alive. It looks like a human life that is driven entirely by love. If you want to know what holiness is, just look at Jesus. If you open the Bible to virtually any page in the four Gospels, you'll see that Jesus is the furthest thing from judgy and condescending. He's the furthest thing from distant and cold. But holiness is like a magnet. When we read the gospel, some people are repelled by Jesus and by his holiness. But I think most people are attracted to him. When most people encounter Jesus, the holy God incarnate, they don't feel small. They feel seen. They feel loved. They feel whole. They feel alive. And I think this is what Peter is inviting us into. This is what he's calling us to when he calls us to be holy. He's inviting us to be like Jesus, to become fully alive, to be like God. So that's the first misunderstanding. It's about what holiness is. And the second is about why we should strive to be holy. Now, verse 11, I think, is really key for understanding our motivation for why we should be holy. In verse 11, Peter says, because God's judgment is coming, you should be holy. Now, understanding how these two things fit together is really important. It's essential to understanding why we should be holy. And I think you could read this verse and take it as a kind of brooding threat, right? Christ is coming. You need to be ready because if he comes back and you're not holy, you're going to be in big trouble. That's one way of reading verse 11, but I don't think that's actually what Peter means here. And I think if our mind goes this way, we've clearly taken a wrong turn and we might even misunderstand the gospel. The gospel doesn't say you need to become holy in order to be saved from God's judgment. The gospel says you get to become holy because Jesus has already saved us from his judgment. We need to remember who Peter is writing to in this letter. He's writing to the Lord's beloved. It's mentioned twice. These are people who know and love Jesus, who know and love his, who know and have received Jesus' love. They're people who have been saved. So what is this connection between God's judgment and the call to live holy and godly lives? Why should we strive to be holy? Well, I think Peter calls us to holy living not to save ourselves from the fire, but so that God can use us to save other people. Just think about it. How do sinners normally come to know and love Jesus? 
Well, it's usually through us. It's usually through Christians sharing the love of Christ. And so I think that means our motivation to lead lives of holiness and godliness is not fear of God's judgment. It's love, love for our neighbors. And I think that means the most missional thing we can do, the most evangelistic thing we can do is, as Christians, is to devote ourselves to the pursuit of holiness, to the pursuit of living holy and godly lives. If we want the gospel to be credible to somebody who does not believe that God exists, if we want the gospel to be compelling to somebody who does believe that God exists but thinks that God hates them, what we should do is be holy as God is holy. Live like Jesus and love like Jesus. And so as I begin to wrap things up this morning, I want to share um, a little bit about what this kind of holiness looks like. It's not something that's theoretical and unattainable for us. So what does it look like? Well, I caught a glimpse of uh, this kind of holiness while I was with Susan's extended family over Thanksgiving in New Orleans. I saw what holiness looks like as I watched Susan's family care for her aging grandmother. Now, Grandma Anne, uh, Susan's grandmother, has advanced dementia, and she really can't remember much anymore. Sometimes, on some days, she still can remember her husband of 65 years, but most days he's just the man who takes care of me, as she puts it. And Anne is an amazing woman. She loves the Lord, and her life has been all about loving people. She was the mother of 12 children. She is the mother of 12 children. And she fostered several more kids. And she spent her, most of her life uh, taking care of her dozens of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It's what she loved most in the world. Her calling in this life was to mother people. She loved to do it. And it was really good to see her over Thanksgiving, but it was also really quite hard. She's just not able to care for other people like she loves to. And the reality is she can't even take care of herself anymore. She requires constant care and attention. And for the whole week that we were there in New Orleans, that's exactly what I saw. I saw dozens of people, her husband, her kids, her grandkids, even her great-grandkids. I saw everyone taking their turn, taking care of her. It was like this beautiful, unchoreographed dance of everyone stepping in to serve. Somebody would help her sit down. Somebody would help her to walk. Another would help her to eat. Another would just sit quietly with her and hold her hand when she was feeling anxious. All the people Anne spent her life caring for are now spending their lives caring for her. I think this is what it looks like to live a holy and godly life. These aren't heroic feats. They're quiet and their unglamorous but faithful acts of love. And just to be clear, Susan's family, they love the Lord, but they're not sinless people. Their patience wears thin. They get angry with Anne sometimes. Sometimes they get angry with God. But the life of holiness is not about perfection. It's about direction. It's about heading in the right direction and making progress in becoming more and more like Jesus over time, and him transforming us more into himself. And in New Orleans, I got to see this happening in a beautiful way. 
The Holy Spirit is transforming their family. Just to give you an example, before Anne's health died, her husband, Susan's Gramps, as we call him, he wasn't known as the most nurturing man in the world. But since he's become his wife's primary caregiver, the Lord really has transformed him. He's opened him up. He's so much more tender and compassionate and empathetic and loving. He's a changed man from when I saw him last. And seeing this holiness is very compelling. I might even say it's contagious. Watching Susan's grandfather, watching the rest of their family care for Grandma Anne made me want to be a better Christian, made me want to be more like Jesus. I think this is what holiness looks like in real life. It looks like Jesus. It looks like people pouring themselves out in love. This is what it means to be fully alive. And I think this is the kind of life, this is the quality of life that the season of Advent invites us into. And it's not just for the first four weeks leading up to Christmas. The reality is our whole lives are lived in Advent. Our whole lives are lived in between the times, in between the time of Christ's coming and his coming again. And I think this is part of the brilliance. It's part of the genius of the church calendar. As we begin every new year, we are reminded of the life that we were made for, of the life that we were saved for, which is a life of holiness and a life of love. And so this Advent, as we remember that Christ came, and as we wait for Christ to come again, we are invited to be holy as he is holy. We are invited to devote ourselves to holy living and to a godly life. And we do this knowing that the one who began a good work in us will bring it about to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Loving Father, we do thank you for sending us your Son. And as we wait patiently for you, as we learn what it means to wait, I pray that you would fill us afresh by your Holy Spirit and that you would help us to lead holy and godly lives for the good of our neighbors and for your glory. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.